Good evening. I'm Mark Middleberg, and it is such an honor to be with you tonight. I don't know if you heard that whole thing. I, it was coming up, but I'm Mark Middleberg, and I'm honored. I'm honored to be here after a worship time like that with Michael and this band. I'm honored to be at the Econ 2023 conference and with so many leaders who are sacrificing and giving of yourselves and taking risks for the sake of the gospel, as well as all of you who joined us from the church and the region. I have the distinct privilege tonight to talk about the most exciting, the most rewarding, the most important thing on the planet, which also happens to be, for many Christians, the most scary, most intimidating, uh, most frightening thing you can possibly do. And if you think about it with me, when it comes to evangelism, we're kind of schizophrenic in the church. We know we're supposed to do it, and when we try, when we take a risk, when we let the Holy Spirit speak through us, he uses us. The God of the universe talks through us and conveys his love, conveys his truth to the people we talk to, and some of them end up coming to faith. And we're going, nothing's better than this. You know, I, I want to give myself to this. And then a lot of us have had those experiences where we felt intimidated. We felt, you know, inadequate. In fact, when don't we feel that? And we've taken a risk. We've tried to say something and we got shut down or ignored or, or laughed at or ridiculed. And we're going, this is the worst. I don't want to do this. I, I don't like feeling like that. Well, what I hope to do is remind you of the first, that this is the most exciting, most rewarding, best, most important thing we can do. And God can help us through the other. And by the way, this is not just for a few of us. This is not for just your pastor or your evangelism person, leader, teacher, or whatever. This is not just for some seminary professors or missionaries. Uh, I want to remind you of things you've read, but I just want to underscore them a little bit. We're going to put up a verse uh, well-known from Jesus in Matthew 20, uh, 28. I think the verse is coming. Where Jesus said, he looked at his disciples, and he looked them in the eyes. This is right before he was going to leave. And he looked at all of them, and here's what I want you to catch. When he looked at them, he was looking through their eyes at all of us. And he was saying, I want you to go into your world. In fact, this is why I'm leaving you here. He's, he's, he's about ready to ascend back to heaven. He's going, here is your marching orders. Here is your assignment. There it is. I want you to go into your world and make disciples. And that doesn't just mean discipleship. That means do the initial part of becoming a disciple. Help people be born into the family. And again, he's not talking there to a, a pastor's conference or a missionary conference. He's talking to everyone who calls themselves a disciple of his. In other words, every believer, every one of us are called to be part of this great commission, this great enterprise to be used by God to touch people with the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, to see people come to faith in him. Uh, let me go to another well-known verse, Acts 1.8. And again, this is Jesus, opening chapter of Acts. He says, looks at all of them, he says, you will be my, uh, my uh, witnesses. You will be used by me to speak for me, to point to me, to help people come to know me. Um, and again, I don't know if you've thought about this. This is why we're here. Uh, most of what we do here on earth, we will do for eternity in heaven. Um, and I love all, I mean, I love great worship, and boy, did we just experience great worship. Well, we're going to worship for all of eternity. It's important here, and it's going to continue there. I love great teaching, and those of you in a church like this church or uh, whatever church you're in, I bet you have some great teaching. Well, it's important, but we're going to keep learning about God, learning about his word, learning about his will for all of eternity in heaven. You know, we don't become omniscient when we get there. We're, we're still on a learning curve. 
Um, I love fellowship. I love meeting a bunch of you. I had a chance to have dinner with some people I hadn't met, some brothers and sisters in Christ. I love being close to you know, the family of God and having fellowship, but we're going to do that for all of eternity. But have you thought about this? Jesus, before he leaves, says, I want you to go and reach people for me. And this is the one thing that he told us to do that we will not be able to do in eternity, in heaven. In fact, we have a few short, what, days, months, years. We have a short season right now where we can reach people for Christ. And then the trumpet's going to blow and it's over. And you will never have another chance to do what we're talking about here tonight. So that's why I say this is important, it's timely, it's urgent. And it's exciting because you get to be a handmaiden of, of the God Almighty to help lead people into his family, into his kingdom. Well, I've quoted a couple of verses. Now let me quote a couple songs. Uh, Michael W. Smith has a song that was way back from the 90s that he did. It's called Seed to Sow. And basically it says all of us, if you're a believer... You've got a seed to sow. And he talks about some of us are loud with it and some of us are quiet with it. Uh, we have different approaches, different personalities. We all are called to you know, sow the seed of the word of God and of the gospel. Well, I want to give you another song. I think I have a slide on this one. Uh, one of the, I think one of the best Christian bands, Switchfoot, uh, sang a song a few years back. I, I've always loved this one. Uh, it says, you were meant to live for so much more. And I believe a lot of us as Christians, we get into the you know, routine of the Christian life. I mean, you, you come to Christ, it's exciting, it's new, and then you kind of learn the drill. And after a while, you kind of have that, that down. You go to church, you have Christian friends, you read your Bible, uh, you, know, you try to be disciplined with some study, you uh, pray, and it can kind of become routine. Uh, it could become mechanical. In fact, I believe it can become a little boring. And then I look at like what Switchfoot said there. You were meant to live for so much more. Not just walking with God and hanging out with believers. You are on a mission. You were left here on this planet, as I've already said, to be a catalyst spiritually in the lives of the people around you, family members, friends, classmates, people you work with, people in your neighborhood. And when you begin to stretch, you begin to do that, you begin to let God use you, you begin to feel that exhilaration, the, the reward of God in those areas as he uses you. And boy, is our culture dying for it and needs it now more than ever. But let, let me just, you know, kind of be real frank with you. I understand that paranoid part, that schizophrenic part when it comes to evangelism. A lot of us look at it and they go, you know, I know what evangelism is. You know, it's, it's an activity for superstar Christians who can do it really well. You know, my pastor, he has special training, special equipment, special gifting and all that. And he can do it really, really well. And so it's for superstar Christians or maybe some worship leaders, some well-known people. Let them do it. It's for them or for people who are just obnoxious enough to do it anyway. You know what I mean? It's like you've seen the Billy Grahams of the world. You've seen the Greg Lorries of the world. You've seen the Lee Strobels of the world. You've seen people who are like these articulate, you know, great spokespeople. And you go, well, that's it's for them. Or you've seen, you know, kind of the oddballs. You know, the guy with the sandwich sign, you know, on the street. Or someone har haranguing strangers with a bullhorn and a, a Bible as, as they walk by. And you're going... I think evangelism is one of those. And if it's for superstars, I ain't one of those. So it's not for me in that case. And if it's for weird people, I don't want to be one of those. So it's not for me in that case either. I guess I'm just an ordinary Christian. In other words, I'm not into evangelism. It's not my gifting. It's not my calling. It's not. Well, does that sound familiar? Because you've had those thoughts in your own head. Uh, or you've heard other Christians say that, or maybe you're a pastor and you run into that all the time. Well, let me tell you, I, I understand the logic that got you there. And in fact, I used to have some of that logic myself. And I just want to share with you, 
I relate to that because I've had those experiences where I tried to do stuff and I go, I'm not cut out for that and I don't want to be this and I guess I'll be an ordinary Christian. Here, here's a story uh, from my life a few years back. I was just starting graduate school. My wife and I, we had just moved to Chicago. Uh, I live in Denver now, but at that time we were in Chicago. I was going to graduate school and I heard about an opportunity to do a summer of ministry. And it's like an overseas mission kind of thing. I thought, what a cool opportunity. Uh, my wife and I grew up in small towns. We hadn't gotten to go very many places. Wow, we get to go cross-culturally and serve a church somewhere. We didn't know where we would be sent, but I kind of naively signed up. I didn't know what I was getting into. I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. This is going to be great. And we signed up. We found out that our little team was assigned to London, England, which sounded pretty cool to me. Uh, we went over there we're with a church on the south side of London, and we get there, and I meet the people. By the way, wonderful church, wonderful people. But we get there, and I meet this team captain. It's like, hey, we're, we're so glad to be here. What are we going to do? And the guy with a little too much enthusiasm is like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm like, whoa, okay. What are we going to do? He goes, we're going to get up tomorrow early. And we're going to go to the neighborhoods all around the, the area, all around the church. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to tell them about Jesus. It's going to be great. I don't know what you think when you hear that. Great was not the word coming to my mind at that moment. It was like intimidation. It's like, and I, I felt conflicted because I knew I should like this. I mean, I love Jesus. I love people. They need to meet him. I ought to like this. I ought to enjoy it. And, and I started kind of doing that self-talk thing. You're going to like this. You, you love God. This is going to be good. Gear up, you know. Well, the next day we went out, and I had geared up, and I had prayed, and uh, my wife and me and another person, and we started going around the neighborhood. And these were not people who had, like, asked for a visit. These are, like, just neighborhood, you know, people. And we're knocking on doors. And I got to tell you, it was tough. A um, lot of disinterest, a lot of like, who, who are, I remember one uh, time we knocked on, a, I, I had knocked on the door, and the woman opened the door about this much and kind of looked out, and she said, what do you want? And I'm trying to keep it lighthearted. I was like, well, we don't want anything. We're just from a church over here on the corner, and we're kind of going around the neighborhood and seeing if people want to talk about spiritual matters, see if you have any, you know, questions about the Bible or uh, well, in the middle of it, she kind of cuts me off and really in an accusatory tone. She said, you have an American accent. And I'm like, whoa, what a coincidence. Again, trying to keep it light. We're from America. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? And meet our, you know, British counterparts. And she said, why don't you go back to your own country and pester the people there? Which at that moment, I got to say, sounded like a pretty good idea. <laughs> it's like, go back to Chicago. We'll pester people in Chicago or, or, or maybe in Louisiana or somewhere, right? Um, but we did this, and, you know, day after day, you know, I knock on the door, the people come, you know, we were getting shut down quite a bit. And, you know, I finally, I'm going, I didn't think I'd like this. I actually like it less than I thought I would. Um, I finally reached a point, though. Well, let, let me just tell you, we, we did this the whole summer. And by the time we were done, I'm on the airplane flying back to America. My main sentiment was, I'm done. I mean, like, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to people you know, rallying the troops, and, boy, this is going to be fun, this is going to be rewarding, this is going to be good, I've done my time. You know, I, you're not fooling fool me once, all that whole thing. I'm not, I'm not signing up again. Next time, I'll send you. Uh, next time, I'll pray for your team. I'll, you know, I'll write a check. Uh, I'll support you. But this is not my gift. This is not my That was my conclusion. But going back, there was something I started to kind of catch on to along the way. And it was the, you know, glimmer of hope that got me through the summer and began to help me to learn what I later really learned and that was, I finally reached a point, I thought, why am I the one knocking on the door? Uh, I'm the one that hates this the most, okay? So, why don't, you know, why don't I have someone else? In fact, I have my wife here with me, and she is like an outgoing people person. I'm a mild extrovert. My wife is a flaming extrovert. 
Um, she's the kind of person that makes new best friends on an elevator ride from the first to the fourth floor of a you know, hotel or wherever. Uh, she's just always meeting strangers, picking up strays, you know, reaching out to people. She's gregarious. She's outgoing. She's an attractive five-foot-tall gal and just has the personality. I thought, you knock on the doors. This is dumb. You knock on the doors. I'm going to hide behind you like this. <laughs> and then maybe, they'll, maybe we'll get a better response. And if they open the door for you, I'll rush in behind you. And it'll be a beautiful thing. So we tried it, and guess what? People started letting us in. Started saying, oh, hey, yeah, come on in. And, oh, who's this guy? Okay, come on in. And, and we'd get in. And I thought, this isn't fair, but it's working. So, okay, let's go with it. And so Heidi knocks on the doors. We started getting invited in. You know, would you like some tea? You know, it's like, sure. And all of a sudden, we're having tea, and we're getting into general conversations, and we get into spiritual conversations. And then sometimes, often, they would ask a hard question. And they'd say, well, you know, I used to go to church, but then this happened. Or then I realized, you know, I had doubts about this whole thing. And they would raise hard questions. And just quite naturally, my wife would kind of turn and say, well, here's the baton. <laughs> this is your, your deal now. And let me answer the questions. Well, that was natural for me. I was studying, getting my degree, a master's degree in philosophy or religion at the time, studying apologetics, how to answer questions. I love that. And this was the inklings of ideas, as I said, where I began to realize we're here as a team. We can kind of do a bit of a division of labor here. We can play to our own strengths I don't have to feel bad that I don't like walking up to a stranger or knocking on doors. Um, my wife doesn't have to feel bad that she doesn't like to answer, you know, present the cosmological argument for the existence of God, uh, though we all should be able to do that. Um, we can divide the labor, and that was, that was again, kind of how I got through it. That was the innovation of the summer. Well, then we got back, we, we got back to Chicago, we went back to church, and not long after that, I went into one of our church services, and the pastor said, we're going to talk about evangelism tonight. I'm like, oh, why did I come? I'm done with this. I, I had all the negative reactions, some of what you guys had when I started talking about evangelism a few minutes ago. Um, but then I began to listen, and he began to show something I had never heard before. And he said, in the pages of the Bible... There's diversity of approaches when it comes to sharing our faith. In other words, we're all called, we all have a seed to sow, right? We're all called to share the good news with other people. But he said, we don't all have to do it the same way. Well, he had my curiosity going now. I was, was kind of perking up a little bit. And then he began to unpack that. Well, what he shared that night, I later developed further with him and wrote about it in the original Becoming a Contagious Christian training course and book, which by God's grace has trained about 2 million people around the world. Uh, and now I've updated all of that, and I'll show you the new Contagious Faith uh, book and course in a little bit. But that whole idea liberated me. Because I, I got away from these stereotypes. I don't have to be a superstar. I'm not. I don't have to be weird. I don't have to like talking to strangers. I, I love it when some of you do. Some of you are made for that. I'm not. Uh, but I can be who God made me to be. And, and that unleashed me for the gospel. And my goal tonight is to unleash you. To help you to see it in a new way. Because evangelism can look like you. It can reflect your God-given personality. And so let me uh, unpack what that means in very specifics. Because I want to talk about what I call uh, five contagious faith styles, five faith-sharing styles. And uh, yeah, we've got some slides to go with us. And I want to encourage you, really actively listen, because I'm betting you can do at least one of these. I'm betting one of these will fit you. And I'm guessing that you'll be a combination of two or three of them. The idea here is not to slot you and kind of say, you do this and stay in your lane. The idea is, at least try this. This probably fits you or maybe that fits you. Try them. Experiment. Have some fun with this. 
And over time, I bet you'll kind of come up with a unique mix of these styles that fit your personality, and it will liberate you. It will unleash you to then in natural ways where you don't feel like you're wearing some costume. You're not pretending to be some, you know, evangelist or pastor or some, you know, person you're not. You'll find natural things you can do that God will use to start impacting the people around you. And once you get going with that, there's no telling how God can use you. So let me go through these, and uh, there's five of them, and you may want to jot some of these down as we go. Uh, And then, uh, again, there's a book that kind of goes into all this. I'll tell you how to get that later. But uh, let's go to the first of the five, what I call the friendship building style. I don't know how those letters got so little, but can you read that friendship building style? And uh, this is, well, first of all, this is my wife. She builds friendships. She reaches out to people. She, she makes them feel welcome. She, she, she just has that gregarious style that opens them up and makes them want to know her more. Um, but going back to the pages of Scripture, we see this one in uh, Matthew, the tax collector who becomes a disciple of Jesus. And Matthew comes to faith and wants to be used by Jesus to, you know, do this great outreach thing they're all about as disciples. But it's sort of like he's looking around like, what can I do? I, I don't have any background in this. I don't, you know, I have training in, you know, money counting and stuff. But, but I don't know how to do ministry. I'm not a speaker. I'm not educated. What, what can, about all I know how to do is throw a party. And then the light bulb goes on. Why don't I throw a party for Jesus and the disciples and invite all my buddies from the office? And that's what it says in Luke 5.29. Matthew has a banquet at his house, a party. And he invites all of them. He kinda, it's, it's a party with a purpose. He mixes it up spiritually so that conversations can flow and maybe, maybe God will use this. And he did. And Jesus came and, and showed up and, and, you know, worked through that. And, and in fact, Jesus defends Matthew's party. But here's the point. Some of us are just relational types. We're people people. We don't want to debate ideas. We want to get to know the person. We want to know, how are you doing? Uh, you want to hang out. You want to go out for coffee. You want to uh, come over for the game this weekend. You want to grab some pizza, uh, have a meal, whatever. Your friendship builder. And I just want to uh, encourage, first let me ask, how many say that? Probably is mine. I haven't heard the others, but I, it sounds like one I could use. Put your hands up high. Okay. I just want to encourage you. First of all, Jesus was a friendship builder. Remember, he was called the friend of sinners, which at that time was a, an insult, but he wore it as a badge of honor. In fact, he came to be our friend, to, to, to redeem us and bring us into his family. So Jesus did this. Um, and I just want to remind you that friends listen to friends. You know, if someone's going through a hard time, they, they want to reach out to somebody who they know and trust and, and know has their best interests in mind. Someone has spiritual questions, they don't wait for, you know, like some guys in white shirts to knock at the door. You know, they want to talk to a friend they trust, right? Well, be that friend. Get close to people, and you earn their trust. You earn their respect. And it's in that relational context that it's very easy to then share about the spiritual side of your life, to talk about how Christ has changed your life, to talk about what he has done, that he's the Savior for all of us, that we're all sinners who need a Savior. So I just want to encourage you that this is a a really important one. And in our culture today, you know, where people have been isolated and in lockdowns and, you know, beat up by the the last three years, people are looking for connections. They're looking for friendships. They're looking for people like those of you that raised your hands. And by the way, we can all do elements of all of these. But for some of you, this can be your main approach. When I first started teaching some of these uh, ideas back many years ago, there was a woman in our church in Chicago who uh, was one of the shyest, most quiet people I had ever met. 
And she made an appointment to come ask me some questions. She wanted to reach her husband. She had recently come to faith. Um, her name's Julie Harney, and she, she came. and uh, She'd ask me questions, but she'd kind of whisper them because she was so shy and quiet. And I'd say, oh, that's a good question, Julie. And I, I'd say something, and she, she'd write it down. But she was still just very shy and quiet. But she came through our training. We, we had a seminar, and she would come through the seminar and learn how to naturally share her faith. She learned that she has this friendship-building style. And in her very quiet, natural way, she shared her faith with her husband and led him to Christ. And then she shared her faith with her two teenage daughters, and they came to Christ. And then with a nephew, and he came to Christ. And then he went in the military, and she started reaching out to all his friends. And uh, she, she, we, we had a little bookstore in our church. She would volunteer in the bookstore. I remember one day a woman came to the bookstore and said, could someone show me around the church? I'll do it. You know, she, Julie very quietly says, I'll, I'll take you around. She goes around. She, oh, this is where we you know, teach the junior high kids and, and have a youth ministry with them. And, and let me tell you what's happening in their lives. And she's sharing how the gospel's impacting young people. And then, oh, here's our women's ministry area. And here, here's what we're doing. And she's just sharing the gospel, sharing her faith quietly through the store. They got to the other end of the building. She ended up sitting on a bench with that woman she was giving a tour to who she had just met and led her to Christ. Julie, in one year, led like, I think it was 16 people, something like that, to, to Christ on her own, quietly. And she, you know, years later, I, I would talk to her, and she's still, you know, sharing her faith, and she's still a shy, quiet introvert. And so, see what I mean? Everyone has a seed to sow. Everyone has natural things they can do. In her case, she was a quiet friendship builder. My wife's more of an outgoing, you know, more gregarious friendship builder. There's all these different approaches, but the friendship building is one that people in our culture are going to be open to. And it's probably the broadest one that can be used in the most contexts. So let me encourage you. One thing, I want to give you a caution. If this is you, don't just build friendships. Use the term friendship evangelism. A lot of us go, I'm into the friendship And I just want to say, you, you know, build friendships, but the most friendly thing you can do is tell people about the love and forgiveness and salvation of Jesus. If we're real friends, don't we want them to know about the Savior? So don't let your love for the relationship get in the way of telling them the truth of the gospel. Be, you know, don't be a silent witness. Tell them about Jesus. And again, it's the most friendly thing you can do. Let me go to the second style. We call this one the selfless serving. This one works more through actions. It, it, it helps people in tangible ways. And our example in the Bible of this one is Tabitha, a woman in Acts chapter 9. There is, after the early church was just getting going, she was an early disciple. And we learn from the passage in Acts 9 that she was making articles of clothing for needy people, serving them with her hands in ways that made their heads turn heavenward. The people would see she loves us in such a real way, such a helpful way. There must be a God in heaven because we know she's a follower of, of this Jesus. And so, you know, she was like a first century Mother Teresa. Her actions were hard to ignore. And they must have been important because if you read the whole passage, you find out she dies and God's like up in heaven going, no, 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 I needed her. I, I need her in action. I need her serving. Uh, Peter, go over there, pray over, raise her back to life, put her back to work. So you see there are some advantages to some of these styles. You, you don't know what might happen, right? Um, but some of you are a lot like Tabitha, you, you see needs maybe the rest of us don't see. 
And you take joy in serving people. And it's not usually up on a stage. It's not under lights or with a microphone. It's usually behind the scenes. Uh, you often don't get a lot of credit for it. But you find joy in fixing the plumbing of, of, of a, a neighbor who's in need or, or helping watch the kids of a single mom or mowing the lawn of an elderly person or helping build a home or whatever it is, feeding people in, in inner city situations or whatever it is. And I just want to say, this is an important style. It's also the one that reaches the hardest to reach people. You know, because hurting people are often also jaded toward God and toward the church and, and, you know, kind of put this wall up. But when you serve them, you kind of lovingly get behind the wall and start taking it down brick by brick by brick. So I just want to encourage you. How many say, this sounds more like me. I'm probably the selfless serving. Great. I just want to encourage you, like I said, you can help reach the hardest to reach people, but the, the caution here is very similar to the last one. Don't think I can just serve and they'll figure it out on their own. Serve and at some point, let them know what motivates you. Let them know about the love of Christ in your life. You know, drop hints, and if, if you're not a very verbal person, write them a note. Um, give them a book. Give them something. Invite them to your church. Uh, serve people, but point them to the Savior. And then that's where it becomes a co powerful combination. It's the mix of loving service with the gospel message of Christ. And if I could just do a quick parenthesis for those of you that are pastors and church leaders. I want to caution you, you know, in the last couple of decades, there's been movements in the church that in many ways are healthy, toward missional Christianity, toward uh, serving in the community, toward, you know, serving people in tangible ways, uh, social action kinds of things. And those can be loving, they can be winsome, they're important. But sometimes, often, I think the pendulum swings with it, where we used to be taking risks to share the message of Christ now we just feed people, and people seem to like that a lot more. They don't, they don't get intimidated. They don't get uh, offended that we're saying you need to follow Jesus. So the pendulum swings in many churches, and suddenly we're just serving people. And again, that's loving, but the most loving thing we can do is tell them about the Savior. So combine the two. And if you have teams that go feed people or build homes or, you know, serve the community, clean up the community, make evangelism training part of the preparation to go do that so that while they're serving in tangible ways, they can sit for a break and have a, a, a bottle of water with someone and share their testimony and share the message of Christ. Combine the two, and then it is dynamite. Let me go to the third one. This one's the story-sharing style. And our example here is the blind man in John chapter 9. Um, and by the way, the icon here is a book. It doesn't mean you've got to write a book. It just means you have a story. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a, a, something you can say as, as his witness to talk about what he's done in your life. And for some people, this is their main approach. Now, the blind man in John 9 had been blind all of his life. He's begging by the side of the road. And one great day, Jesus happens to be walking by, sees the man. Uh, the guy calls out, asks for help. Jesus heals him. And boom, the guy can see. And he's like, wow, this is awesome. Thank you, Jesus. But before he hardly has a chance to blink, he gets dragged in front of the religious leaders and he's suddenly on trial. Like, what did I do? And they're pressing him. You, again, you read about it in John 9. They're pressing him like, who did this? And by what authority? And, you know, how did he do it? And what was the formula? And what, they're, he's, they're pressing him with all this. And you can almost see the guy getting fed up. It's like, I don't know. Here's what I know. I used to be blind now I can see. Deal with it. Jesus, a guy named Jesus, I just met him, just saw him. Um, he did it. Maybe you should go talk to Jesus. Well, they weren't quite ready for that advice yet, but he was using his very fresh story 
to point them to Jesus. Now, he later met Jesus and understood more of who Jesus was and what the gospel was. So I think his story developed a lot more after that. But some of us can speak out of our experience in ways that connect with the experience of other people in ways that they, they understand, they relate to, and it helps them say, I need what he found, I need what she found. And uh, you tend to be people who are storytellers anyway. When you talk about what you did over the weekend or over the summer, people tend to be interested and listen. Uh, but when you talk about your faith, guess what? Your friends are more interested than you think they are. We have this illusion in the church that people out there, they don't want to hear anything. They don't want to talk about religion. They don't want to talk about the Bible. They, they're all mad or they're all, you know, turned off to it. No. Most people are very interested if we come off gently, you know, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15, be gentle and respectful, uh, take an interest in them, ask questions, let them tell you their story first, and then you kind of earn the right to reciprocate, reciprocate and to share your story with them. Do that. People are, and especially if they're your friend anyway, they're going to be interested. And so take that opportunity, share your story. And they're going to say, you know, they may say that's nice for you, it's not for me. And then you can just gently say, you know, I think it might actually be for you, but we can talk more about it later, that's all right. But use your story to open people up, to get them thinking. And no telling how God might use that. How many of you say that sounds more like me? I bet there's more of you. <laughs> um, if you talk out of your experience, well, here's what God's done in my life. And it may be when you first came to Christ, it may be ways he's helping you through things now, uh, things he's teaching you, maybe even hard things you're learning. But if you share out of your experience, God can really use that. By the way, if you want a modern example of this, it's my friend and ministry partner, Lee Strobel. is a great example. You know, former atheist. In fact, I don't know if you saw the Case for Christ movie. Uh, as well as the Case for Christ book. And really, anytime Lee speaks in uh, any of his books, he weaves his own story in. And I used to be a hard-hearted atheist, and I was a newspaper reporter, and then my wife became a Christian. And he, he just tells that story, how he ended up reaching the point of trusting in Christ. He, he shares his story in powerful ways that God uses. And uh, in my experience, I've never seen so many people come to Christ through a book than I have through the Case for Christ book. Uh, people read it, and I mean, agnostic Jewish lawyers come to Christ, and motorcycle daredevils, evil Knievel read Lee Strobel's book and came to Christ. Um, I, I'm doing a, an event in Florida in March with a meth addict who was alone in his apartment and read Lee's story and came to Christ that night. Now he's a worship leader. Um, God uses stories well told and well presented, and he can use yours. And by the way, it doesn't have to be dramatic like a blind man or an atheist. Uh, it might be that you were just a church person who didn't understand what it meant to really know God, and then you came into a relationship with God, and it changed everything. Well, guess what? There's a lot of spiritually dead church people who will relate to that story, and they'll say, I thought it was just attending. I thought it was kind of a, a rule that I had to show up at church. And now th this, this gal's telling me about having a relationship with Christ. What does that even mean? I need to look into this. I, I got to ask her some more questions about this. And all of a sudden, you're talking, and maybe she'll go to church with you or whatever. But God can use your story to open someone up. Okay, number four is the reason-giving style. And the person in Scripture that we look to on this one is Paul. And the passage is <clears throat> Acts, excuse me, Acts 17, uh, where he's in Athens, Greece. And you just think about it. Here he, here's this evangelist, this Christian, in Athens, Greece, talking to a bunch of secular philosophers. And it se seems intimidating, but Paul knew his reasons. And he had the Holy Spirit, and he, he looks at him. You remember the passage? He says, you know, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious people. You have the idols everywhere. But you have this one over here that really interests me, the idol to an unknown God. Well, guess what? 
The God you don't know is the real one. So let me tell you about the real God. The real God made us. And he, he goes into it and logically steps through from creation to then the incarnation, to Jesus coming, becoming one of us, dying, and then rising from the dead. He just, boom, he lets these secular philosophers have it. But Paul, it was natural for him. He's trained. He's logical. Uh, he, he's very articulate. And he just lays this out in a very logical way. And a lot of them are going, whoa, uh, you know, never heard anything like this before. We need to hear more. And then they met with Paul. And a bunch of them end up becoming followers of Christ. So God uses this reason-giving style. It's more like apologetics, as we use the term today. Giving a defense of your faith. Giving reasons to believe. And some of you are a lot like Paul. And, uh, you know, you're more logical. You're more into giving reasons. You're the kind of person you're always researching stuff, looking things up. <coughs> you're the kind of person that just needs to know, why is it true? How do, how do I know? And let's debate some ideas here. Let's talk. Let's give reasons. And if you apply that in the spiritual realm, God can use you in a powerful way. Now, how many of you say, that sounds more like me? Raise your hands. Raise them high. I want people to see who these, this group is because I think probably out of the five styles, this is probably the most godly of the five. Um, <laughs> probably the most important. Um, oh, by the way, did I mention this is my style too? Ah, yes. All right, maybe it's not the most godly, but it is increasingly important because we live in a culture that is running from the knowledge of God. Isn't that true? God says, in the beginning, I created them. No, no, it wasn't creation. It just is chance. I created them male and female. No, no, there's 57 genders. You know, whatever God says, this culture's running the other way. And some of us are made to articulate why it makes sense. You know what? There's actually good evidence that God created and so forth. Some of us are made for this. And boy, is it needed in our culture today. People need to know reasons. So many young people that are drifting from their faith because no one's taken time to show them why it's true. A lot of our young people grow up in Sunday school and they know what they're supposed to believe. And they can kind of rattle off the doctrines and maybe even quote Bible verses with them. They know what they're supposed to believe, but they don't know why it's true. And we've got to raise this one, friends. We've got to teach them why it makes sense, you know, what the evidence is, that you don't just have to take a blind leap of faith. You don't have to just assume the Bible's the Word of God. There's good reason to believe it's the Word of God. It, it squares with history. It squares with archaeology. It, it squares with logic. And when you read it, it squares with what your heart knows is true, that you're a sinner, that you're falling short, that you need forgiveness. There's all kinds of good reasons to believe this book. we got to teach those reasons. And some of you that raised your hands and maybe some others are made to really specialize in this. And I think we need people in every church that specialize in this and who kind of become uh, consultants in truth to the rest of the church. So when, you know, some cult shows up at your door, you say, well, you know, meet with this person in our church who studies that group and can help you answer it and help you reach out to those people with the love and truth of Christ. We need this, friends. And especially the younger generation is getting pummeled with objections and doubts and misinformation uh, on the internet and on social media. And we've got to give answers. I mean, if I could sound an alarm, I mean, this is, this is one of the most important things we need to do. So that when our young people hear the objections, they say, ah, we already studied that one three weeks ago in our Sunday school class. That's ridiculous. Here's why it's not true. And they, they're ready to articulate an answer. And then say, not only that, here's some other evidence you need to consider. Now all of a sudden they're on the offense. They're, they're no longer saying, oh, this is a bunch of fairy tale stuff that, you know, I, was, I, I believe it because my parents believed it. And then all of a sudden a friend raises a doubt. It's like, well, my parents could have been wrong. Well, 
Forget believing it just because your parents believed it. You believe it because you've studied it and you know and you have the information. And you, you've got, here's some data. Here's a study. Here's, here's you know, some archaeological evidence. Here's some philosophical answers. Here's some answers to tough objections. We can do this, friends. But we got to teach our young people and we need to empower the specialists in the room in this area. You may sense a little extra passion from me on this one, but our culture is going the wrong way and it's dragging way too many of our young people with it. So we need to speak up on this. We need to train ourselves and them. And I also want to mention that we've got some, uh, a, a tool for you. Let me go to the next slide. Um, Lee Strobel and I, we've been doing this for 35 years together, but we finally, in the last couple years, when, right when COVID started, we were launching this new thing called the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics with our partners and friends at Colorado Christian University, a solid biblical evangelical school. And uh, so during COVID, we're working with 40 PhDs to develop undergrad and graduate programs as well as certificate courses in the areas of evangelism and practical apologetics. Well, we've done that, we've launched it, these are accredited and they're all online. So I just wanna let you know, because this is such an important area, um, your young people, they can get a degree through this um, and uh, maybe some of you are going, I'm, I don't need college credit, I just need the information. We have certificate courses that are really inexpensive, again, all online. And we've already got our first graduates going through and, and coming out and saying this was so helpful, uh, people that are then working in churches and ministries. So if you're interested in that, I just want to make you aware, the website is strobelcenter.com. And also, we have a table out here, and my buddy out here, Thomas, is at the table. And they have some specials on uh, some of the courses. They have 40% off certificate courses for the next three days, as well as $1,000 scholarships on the degree programs. So please, if you're interested for yourself or someone in your church or someone that you think needs to be part of this, go talk to Thomas out here and get that information. I hope that'll serve you. But let me go on uh, finally to the fifth of the styles. And this one I call the truth-telling style. Truth-telling. And again, we're all supposed to tell the truth, but this person is, is someone who's more of a hard-hitting, direct, get-to-the-point kind of person. Uh, they're a catalyst, catalytic kind of person in someone's life. Uh, they're the kind of person that kind of delights in pushing people off the fence. You know, because so many people are wishy-washy in our culture, and they're kind of in, kind of out, kind of, I don't know. And some people are just like, get off there. Long enough. Doesn't your butt hurt by now? Get off that fence. And if it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. I had one of these reach me when I was 19. And by the way, this is not me, okay? Um, I, I can be a little direct, but uh, these are folks that are like hard-hitting. By the way, our biblical example on this one is Peter. Right? Peter in Acts chapter 2 stands up, you know, day of Pentecost in front of a largely Jewish audience in the very city where Christ had been crucified just a few weeks earlier and risen from the dead. But he stands up in front of this audience. He goes, men of Israel, listen to me now. Now this is pretty truth-telling, right? He goes, you need to know. It's like a three-part sermon. You need to know God sent his Messiah named Jesus. Number two, you murdered him. Number three, you're in big trouble with God. He's confronting him with truth. And the people are cut to the quick. They know it's true, and the Holy Spirit's at work. And they said, we know. What must we do to be saved? Peter's like, I'm glad you asked. Here's the good news. The Messiah you murdered came back to life three days later, and he's not mad at you. He wants to forgive you. He's offering you salvation. If you'll call on the name of the Lord and believe on him and make him your Lord and Savior and be baptized into the family, you can do that today and be a follower of Jesus and be forgiven. And you know the rest of the story. 3,000 people do it. So God works through this truth-telling style in a powerful way. 
But I want to clarify, it's not necessarily from a platform like Peter or from, you know, in a big audience. It's often one-on-one. -on -one. And that's what happened to me. I, I started to say, when I was 19, I was a, a lapsed Baptist kid. Raised in a Baptist church, taught the truth, knew the gospel, knew the Bible verses, and I could argue theology drunk at parties and win the argument. But I wasn't walking with Christ all through high school. I'm a year out of high school. I'm 19. I'm working in this really cool electronics store selling these things called records. Remember those? They're coming back. But I, would, I was selling all this cool stuff. A friend of mine from high school named Terry came in and pretended to be interested in a stereo. And then he kind of shifted on me. And he said, <clears throat> he said, I'm just curious. You make me curious, Mark. I go, what, what do you mean? He goes, you claim to be a Christian, right? I'm like, getting nervous, like, uh, yeah, but, you know, shh, I don't want my partying co-workers to hear this. Um, yeah, he said, you claim to be a Christian, but that's the point. He said, you claim it, but I know enough about your life. You're not, you know, you're, you're partying, you're, you're messing around, you don't know what you're doing. You, you know, he lists all this stuff off, and he goes, it doesn't sound like a Christian. I said, and I'm, I'm scrambling, like, what do you say to a guy who's getting in your face about this? So I did the best I could, okay? I looked at him and I said, well, Terry, I guess I'm a cool Christian. You know, cool Christians have more fun. They kind of live however they want. They don't get hung up on rules and legalism. And, and I'm trying to explain this. And he cuts me off. He goes, there's a word for cool Christians. And I bit, took the bait. I said, what's that? He said, hypocrites. And that was my reaction. It's like, really? I, I said, you're, you're calling me a hypocrite. And he goes, well, I'm just talking truth here, you know. And uh, I'm offended. I'm mad. And then what do you do? You attack the person, right? So I said, Terry, are you telling me you got your life all together? Are you telling me you're perfect? He goes, no, but at least I'm honest about it. It's like, oh. Okay, you're done. We're gone. He leaves. I'm walking around the store angry, kind of fuming, like, who the heck does he think he is? He, Terry's so cocky. I never liked that guy. And I, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. And then the Holy Spirit starts to work and starts to kind of open my eyes and melt my heart. And I kind of have this still small voice saying, you know why you're so mad, don't you? Why? Because you know he's right. Yeah. Well, that anger turned to reflection, and over the next few days, that reflection turned to repentance. And less than a week after Terry confronted me, did the truth-telling thing, I gave my life to Christ. So I thank God for you that are more direct, more truth-telling. You know, you're not afraid of strangers. You're not afraid of hard words. We need you. You, you stir it up for the rest of us. But it's not me. It's still not me. But I thank God for some of you. How many of you say, I'm more the direct truth teller? I'm more the Peter. Yeah, see how boldly they raise their hand? He's like, yes. Pretty sure this is God's style. Yes. Uh, how many else? Come on, who else? All right. I see you, see you throughout the room. I just want to encourage you. You know, you might have to make people uncomfortable. And it's okay. Terry made me very uncomfortable. And God used it. So, I mean, don't hurt people, okay? But, but be direct. Be bold with them. Uh, I didn't give the caution on the fourth one, on the uh, reason giving. Here's a caution for that. Don't just talk endlessly about reasons. Don't just go on and on. Here's my 37th reason this makes. No, you finally reach a point where you're going, the truth is in. Where does it point? And you got to get to the gospel. Because your ultimate goal is not just to win arguments, it's to win people to Christ. Ultimately, we want to point to the gospel message of Christ, which according to Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation. Now, uh, let's go to the next slide. Some of you are church leaders. I know a lot of you are pastors for, that were here for the conference. I just want to kind of, one minute, just expand your vision based on these icons, based on the five styles. This is not only liberating, I hope, for some of you as pastors to say, oh, now I see more. I could, I could probably have more 
fruit and more impact and enjoy it more if I, I operate over in this style or a combination of these two uh, or whatever. But I also want to, from a leadership standpoint, say this is a model that you can use to unleash your whole congregation. Uh, because what we need to do, and I talked about this in my workshop earlier, we need to train 100% of the people in our churches to share their faith in natural ways. And so use these, this whole idea, this training, as a tool to help everyone in your church discover their styles. And then they can start comparing notes and figuring out, oh, you're this. Oh, I, yeah, I knew you were that. And then they start partnering with each other like Heidi and I did in England with the other folks there. Now we become a team, and you get in situations where you go, this, this doesn't fit me very well, but I'm pulling in this guy or this gal, and boy, she'll be able to help answer those questions, and he'll be able to invite her into the you know, circle of the, his uh, home group that he has, you know, meeting. And, but we'll work together. See, that's where it becomes exciting. That's where it's not just a bunch of individual people with contagious faith. It's a contagious church. So I just want to whet your appetite for how this is a model you can do this with. And I want to show you the, the tools that are available. I don't have them here tonight, but you can get them online. Uh, next slide. Uh, there's the Contagious Faith book that goes through the five styles as well as key skills that relate to each of the styles. And that's a book that's just a book you read. And then on the right, it's a six-week video training course uh, that you can do in small groups, you can do it in Sunday school classes. You can even do a whole church together using some of the videos that I've done, and I interview examples of each of the styles. Uh, so you see people that kind of model and live those. Um, so I just want to encourage you. If you're a pastor or a church leader, our goal is to train everyone because we're all, we all have a seed to sow. We all are called to be part of the team. The question isn't if. The question is how, and I think this can help answer that question. And uh, one more thing on that slide. There's a website, I think. Go back to that slide if you could. Yeah, contagiousfaithbook.com. By the way, don't do it now, but there's a little uh, thing you can do with your phone. It's a questionnaire to help you make sure you know what your style is. So you can get the materials there. They're also on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, all those places. But uh, christianbook.com uh, and so forth. If I could, I just want to end with a story. Because um, I know some of you still are going, ah, I still am not convinced this is for me. I'm not sure this is my deal. So let me just end with, by going back. I told you already, I came to Christ when I was 19. Um, I was a brand new believer. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, 19 years old, and I was coming up on my first Christmas as a real believer. And I was part of this Bible study, kind of a loosely uh, knit Bible study that met on Monday nights, very creatively called the Monday Night Bible Study. Um, and we would get together and we would just invite friends, but we had a contagious love for Christ. A bunch of us had just come to faith. And as we'd invite people, one of the people that came uh, to the study was a gal I had gone to high school with named Peggy. And someone, I don't know who, but someone had invited her. And she started coming. And she would listen and enjoy it. There, you know, this is a group of like 30 people in a living room. And she would ask questions. And she even got a Bible. And uh, Well, actually, she, I'll tell you the story about the Bible. But she, she, she's, you know, kind of interested. And uh, I sensed that, like, Peggy is getting more religious, and she's kind of getting acclimated to our group. She's starting to talk more and more like us. I'm not convinced she gets it yet. And so I'm sensing this. I'm sensing kind of a, a leading from the Holy Spirit, like, Mark, I want you to talk to her. And I'm going, like, I'm a newbie here, Lord. I mean, you ever argue with the Holy Spirit? Doesn't work, right? But I tried anyway. Like, I'm a newbie. Maybe someone who's like a veteran could, could talk to Peggy. Mark, I want you to talk to Peggy. All right, Lord. Well, you'll have to open that door, Lord. Okay. My first Christmas as a follower of Christ, I'm driving through our little town, uh, which is up in North Dakota, where we have this thing called snow. Have you heard of snow? Um, it's this white stuff that falls from the sky. It was a snowy Christmas day, which is redundant uh, for North Dakota. And I'm driving along. I see Peggy walking. 
And it's like, okay, Lord, I think you were telling me to talk to her. Uh, okay. Hi, Peggy. So I, I pull over. I roll down the window. And this is back in the days where you rolled down windows. <laughs> I roll down the window. And, hey, Peggy, what are you doing? It's freezing out here. She said, yeah, I just live a couple blocks from here. I'm just doing a little Christmas walk before our family dinner. I, oh, okay. Uh, you have a minute? I, I have something I want to talk to you about. And I'm going, oh, no. I'm, and now I'm into it. Here's what I want to emphasize, you guys. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a newbie. I was a, you know, I had never gone through any books or courses or been to any conferences. I, I didn't know anything. I was just a, a guy who knew a few Bible verses and grew up in church. But God's leading me. So I, I pull the car over. I get out. We, we chat for a minute. And I mentioned the Bible study. I said, so glad you're coming. She was, oh, it's great. I'm meeting a lot of people and I'm learning a lot. And it's been really fun. And yeah, I said, well, that's great. I said, you know, I know this might sound weird to you, but I sense God's been telling me to talk to you. Really? Well, what about? And I said, well, here's my question. I said, I know you're, you're kind of getting into the religion thing, but have you ever reached a point where you've realized you need to ask him for his forgiveness and to come into your life and to become your leader and, and you know, your, your savior and your, your Lord. She kind of looked at me like, no. She said, I, I've never done that and no one's ever told me I needed to. I said, I think that's why God's been whispering to me to talk to you. I said, you need to do that. She said, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not a religious type and, I, you know, I'm a, I've, I've done some bad things in my life. And, in fact, she said, I, I got to confess something. She goes, you know that Bible I bring to the Bible study thing? I said, yeah. She goes, I stole it. I said, you stole a Bible? She goes, yeah. How low do you have to be to steal a Bible? She goes, I stole a Bible. And I said, like from a store? She goes, no, I was in a hotel and it was in the drawer and I... I, I, I've been going to this Bible study with you guys, and I wanted to know, so I stole the Bible. I don't think I could, you know, be a Christian if I, you know, like a Bible thief. And I'm, by this point, I'm laughing. I'm going, you know, I absolve you, you know. It's like, it's okay. She goes, what do you mean stealing's a sin? I said, I know the people that put those Bibles in the hotel room. They're there so people will steal them. You're okay. You're, you're blessings, whatever. But you still need to receive the Savior. You still need his forgiveness in general. And yeah, you can confess the Bible thing. She goes, I need to hear more about this, but I need to get back for our dinner. Could you come back by later tonight? So I'm going, Christmas, yeah, what, what better thing to do than let's go do this. So I went back to her house later that evening, and we talked for two or three hours. And friends, this novice, rookie, insecure person who was, you know, had trepidation about doing this did my best to explain the gospel message. And Peggy prayed that night to receive Christ. And her life changed. And I tell you the story to say, if I could do that as fresh off the party scene, I used to be at parties with her sometimes. I mean, it's like fresh off a life of rejecting God and going my own way. and If God could use me, he can use you because you know a whole lot more than I did then. And I, here's the rest of the story. First, I actually have a picture. You're wondering, how long ago was this? I, this was the 70s. And we, I have a picture of Peggy and me. Were we not groovy there, huh? That, isn't that fun? That's Peggy. And she was just a good friend, but this was around the time where I was sharing with her and talking with her. Get this. We grew apart. I, we both lived in North Dakota. I moved to Chicago. She moved to Minneapolis. I didn't know what happened. You know, I, I kind of lost touches before social media. You know, we didn't even have the internet back then, if you can believe that. I didn't know what happened to Peggy. And years later, I went back to a class reunion in North Dakota and she wasn't there, but a friend of hers brought something to give me. I said, how's Peggy doing? I, I said, I haven't heard. Is she growing? Is she okay? Is, she said, well, I'm glad you asked. Actually, Peggy gave me something to give you. And here it is. She handed me a card. And I have a picture of the card I was handed. Let's take a look at that. Peggy, by this time had married Wayne, get this, she led Wayne to Christ. 
and they got married. They had three kids, and they were raising money to go to Wycliffe, you know, with Wycliffe Bible translators over to the other side of the world, to Papua New Guinea. And here, think about this, friends. Think about how God works. A woman who pilfers Bibles from a hotel room gives her life to taking the scriptures to people in a faraway land, and she spent almost a quarter of a century there sharing the good news and doing this work with Wycliffe over in Papua New Guinea. Is God not amazing? Amen. And so I just wanted to share that. And I want to encourage you again, and this is, this is the end. We all have a seed to sow. Your life was meant for a lot more than mechanical, routine Christianity, boring faith, you know, just going through the mechanics, and a lot more than just working nine to five and living a normal life. You were made for something extraordinary. The God of the universe wants to deliver his love, his truth, and his life-changing gospel to the people around you. And if you'll open up to that and you'll say yes and take a risk for the sake of the gospel, he will impact the world, maybe impact a family, maybe impact a nation through you. Go in Jesus' name and give it the message to others. God bless.